It is a joy to be back together to teach with you. A very fun week last week with the snow and all the weird stuff going on. And many of you had children home all week, and I did, and that was a joy to to me. Uh, as your children get older, you get less and less time to be with them. And so anytime I can be with them, that's, that's so encouraging to me to see them and just do things and relax with them. So that was fun. Um, we're going to read through verse 7, and I'll just be honest. I hope we don't have too much uh, this morning to study. Uh, so if we get too deep in there, it's kind of like salami. It's good wherever you cut it off, all right? Just, uh, we'll just chop it off and then just pick up next week. So um, look at verses 1 through 7, if you would, in your copy of uh, 2 Corinthians. You can find a, a Bible in the back of the chairs around you if you want to read in the same uh, version I'm reading in. That's not that important, though. You can just read in the one that you study and you memorize and we'll be fine. I'll give you some verse cues and we'll stay together. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, just, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, verse 7, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Let's stop right there. Last week together we summed up uh, a number of things in the history of this letter. Uh, just a couple of uh, reminders as we uh, have gone through a number of these things, but um, we looked at the conclusion of the previous letter and we asked the question, so did the church heed Paul's words? And uh, as he labored 16 chapters over this letter to them, not the first letter, of course, but this letter, uh, when Timothy arrived, did he find changed hearts after he read the letter? When he finished with Paul's uh, salutation, did he find changed hearts and changed behavior and was able to dwell there without fear? And we saw last time that uh, it is, is uh, perhaps obvious that they did not heed Paul's words. Uh, Timothy's report, in fact, from the church caused Paul to visit the church almost immediately. Uh, undoubtedly, some were chastened by the powerful words of the letter, like we still are when we read through them, and they strike our own heart and open us up and make it clear that uh, we have to change and there are things in our heart that need to be changed. But, uh, you know, Paul still had to come right away. That visit is referred to as the painful visit. And, uh, and he had to write a letter that the Lord did not preserve for us, referred to as a severe letter. And we uh, took some time last time to begin to get to know Paul from, from those things and then from the book of Acts. And we ended with a beginning look at the format of Paul's writing. So look there, if you would, 2 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, it says, Paul, and then we'll skip just a little bit, and then to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. And we have seen with Paul's other letters uh, that this is a very typical format for him. He establishes his identity, and then immediately, look at verse 1, he establishes his authority as an apostle. That's where we left off last time. We didn't get through all the points, so we'll look at them today. And this is something that Paul repeatedly did, and uh, there are many reasons why he did this, and so we're going to look at some of those things. Peter does 
that, he says exactly the same thing. James and Jude call themselves bondservants. John identifies himself as the elder. And so there's some identity going on in the letters, and that's typical of, of letters written during this time. And of course, not all the apostles wrote in the New Testament, but nevertheless, Paul is the one who continually uh, identifies himself in every single one of the letters that he wrote as an apostle. And so I think that's important to look at, and I think it's important because it tells us a lot about the difficulties that Paul had during his ministry, and it lets us identify a little bit with why he writes like he writes and some of the things that he has to deal with on a regular basis, and it makes, I think, puts our difficulties as we deal with uh, believers, as we deal with ministry, as we deal with witnessing, perhaps in a, in a better framework to understand that perhaps that's not so uncommon uh, to make a stand or, to, or to, uh, to witness or whatever it is, perhaps in your family, among your friends, and find that this is uh, resisted and some difficulty comes to you because of this. So I think it's important to look at it. Paul establishes some authority. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, one, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he identifies his calling to be in identification with Christ and by God's express will. We'll look at that in just a minute. And he's not doing any of this to gain any kind of self-glory. He's not saying, you know, I'm an apostle, be jealous. He's saying, I'm an apostle, and there's authority in this position. Please listen to me. I have authority. I speak with authority, Paul says. What I'm about to say to you comes from Jesus Christ at the will of God. And that's pretty significant, um, as he can make that statement very clearly to the church. And so, as we said last week, you know, Paul describes his position, and really, the position of every apostle, and to a greater or lesser degree, every church leader, down through the ages, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, he says this, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all. So we understand in the line, uh, there weren't continuing apostles, that when the last apostle died, that was the end of that. But last of all, Paul says, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. In other words, we're something, <laughs> we're something that men are like, so what's he going to do now? You know, uh, what's going to happen now? Who's going to complain now? You know, angels are also looking and thinking, how can this possibly be? Here's these guys sent by the Lord, and, and the church is rejecting them. And so they become a spectacle to the world, both the angels, to the men, and to men. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. So you can see a tongue-in-cheek reaction here, right? So Paul's saying, okay, yeah, you say we're fools, and of course you're, of course, prudent in Christ. We're weak. You're strong. You're distinguished. We're without honor. So a little sarcasm with Paul. He, it's not unusual for him to write this way. Um, he's just kind of reflecting the attitude of the church. And verse 11, he says, To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, are roughly treated, and are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Verse 13, when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. That's the stuff you try to scrub away from your coffee pot and your, you know, your sink in the kitchen. We've become that, Paul says. That's how you look at us. That seems to be where we are. As, it, as we're related in importance of things in the world, we're the dregs, we're the scum, um, even until now. And so he reminds them, as he's an apostle, to give authority to what he says, and we saw last time, really, to identify his relationship with the Twelve. So um, it has nothing to do with his vanity, it has nothing to do with him bragging, it has no, you know, nothing with self-glory. He disdains all of that, in fact, um, uh, self-glory, personal merit. He considers himself the least of the apostles. We saw that last time. I don't deserve any of this. I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul says, and his grace did not prove to me vain. And so it's not for that reason he calls himself an apostle or a sent one. So we saw first it's to give authority what he says. Secondly, we saw it identifies his relationship with the twelve. Because Paul is the new kid on the block. And so uh, who at first introduction to the church is just breathing out threatenings. He's breathing out <laughs> slaughters. He's killing Christians. He's hauling them to jail. He's hauling them into the Sanhedrin. He's making sure that they are 
uh, persecuted to the best of his ability. He's doing all kinds of things against the church. He hadn't lived, he hadn't walked with Jesus Christ in his pre-death years. In fact, he was, he was ministering in, in Tarsus at that time in a synagogue likely. He'd not seen the resurrected Christ before he ascended into heaven. And the qualifications of an apostle, according to Acts chapter 1, were that they know Christ in his post-resurrection reality, so they had seen him after he came out of the grave, and that they be specifically and personally and directly chosen by Christ, so they had to have seen the resurrected Christ and been called specifically by him. So he continually establishes he has authority and that he was, in fact, one who saw Christ. So thirdly, we see um, that it seems that he gives himself this title in the scriptures because of his relationship to false teachers. So not only those other two, but false teachers who would try to discredit him. He's continually being harassed by people who were false, and we'll see this problem here in this letter. Actually, this is what he had to write about here. Uh, Teachers would come in and say, uh, you know, they would say to the people who Paul had just taught, he has no credibility, you know, he's, he's, uh, he has no authority, he's not even one of the apostles. What in the world are you listening to this guy for? And so Paul was constantly being knocked, constantly being persecuted, constantly being buffeted around. Even people who claimed to be his friends were giving him a hard time. So false teachers are constantly doing this to the apostle, and I believe that one of the reasons he establishes himself as an apostle so many times is because it helps defend himself against those who would discredit him. So he continues to say it so people will understand where he's from and why he's speaking. Fourthly, it appears that Paul gives himself this title because of his relationship to Christ. I think we can see this, and it probably has to do with the Jerusalem believers' original perception of him. So you've got this church in Jerusalem established after Pentecost, and so they know who Paul is, they know what he's been up to, and he wanted to make sure they knew he was a true believer. So, you know, in 1 Corinthians uh, 2.2, Paul, uh, we noted this saying, I am determined, he said, to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. You know, and so he's very clear. Listen, I know Christ and him crucified. I'm not pretending to know anything else. I'm not counting on my Greek teaching. I'm not counting on my time with Gamaliel. I know Christ, him crucified. This is what I want to preach. So that identified himself very clearly, I think, with, uh, the, with true believers. First Timothy 2.5, Paul says this to Timothy. Can you imagine? This is Timothy's, this is Paul's true son in the faith. So he says this, for there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that Paul needed to say this to Timothy because Timothy had some question about any of this with Paul? I mean, Paul's the one who led him to faith. By Paul's preaching in Derby, um, we see Timothy come to faith. And so mark this. He says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So he reiterates his testimony, even though Timothy is a fruit of his apostleship. I mean, his, his evangelistic approach to his teaching in each of the cities produced the fruit that is Timothy and all the ministry that came under Timothy. So no doubt, if you just read in kind of the backstory, by the tone of his comment, Timothy had heard at least a few times from false teachers and people who follow uh, false teachers, which they're all, people always stand up and, and, and consider themselves a teacher and be false, and there will all be people who follow them. And so Timothy's in Ephesus, likely false teachers saying, hey, why are you listening to Paul? I mean, this dude isn't even an apostle. He's got no authority. And so Timothy's saying to Paul, hey, this is what's being said. And so Paul says, listen, here's what I say to that. Uh, so I say that for this reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So he makes it clear to Timothy, listen, just to reiterate to you, I know what you're hearing, uh, but, and false teachers will always say that, but here's the truth about me. Fifthly, it appears that he uses his title to express his relationship to the readers themselves. 
We see that pretty often. He wants them to know that he has been sent to them, that he's not just an apostle, but he's an apostle to the church, it says in 2 Corinthians 1, 1, of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So he wants them to know that his calling was to them. So he's been called of God to go to them with the message. In 1 Corinthians 9, he defends this again, and he says to them, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So he has to reiterate again. Here's the church he planted and spent 18 months teaching, and he has to write them and say, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Don't you know all of this? Surely they've heard that testimony many times from Paul while he was there with them. Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, the fact that this church exists after 18 months of my effort proves that I was sent by God to you. So he states his title again in order to express that he is related to them as a special messenger from God. And then sixthly, it appears that he expresses his title to uh, express his relationship to God himself. And so he says this. He says, uh, so... It gives his words authority. It shows his relationship to the 12. He silences false teachers to show his relationship to Christ, um, to express his relationship to the Corinthians, and finally, to show his relationship with God. When Paul says, again, back in our text, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, here it is, by the will of God. So God has willed that I do what I do. So he just wants to make sure they know, hey, I'm, I'm an apostle of Christ, and it was God's will that I be that. He's an apostle of Jesus because God's had, God had willed it to be so. So now Jews reading this would understand this very clearly because they understood the word apostleship. Uh, there was a Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. You probably remember this in, in some of your teaching and your background of uh, church history. They were made up of 71 of the widest, wisest elders in Israel. Uh, they made the decisions regarding every Jew in the world, uh, religious decisions, moral decisions. There's some uh, contention, of course, in Israel now of the reestablishment of this very body. It started, it stopped, they've argued about it, whatever. Of course, they're they're Jews outside of Christ right now, so they're Jews in the land in unbelief, so always things go badly when that's going on, if you, if you read all anyway through the Old Testament, so they always struggle. But anyway, there's some struggle there that then, but now, but then, uh, back then, there was this, this council, and when anyone had a problem in any place, and if it couldn't be settled inside the council of their own synagogue, they'd send it up the, to the highest court, it'd go to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin would make a judgment and a verdict on the decision. And then they would dispatch a man to take the verdict back to the community of the Jews, and, uh, that had asked for it, and that man was called an apostolos. He was the guy who got to take the message from the Sanhedrin. So he, he's called an apostle, he was a sent one, he's a messenger, if you will, an ambassador, an agent, uh, all those things I think fit very well. Sent back, he would say to the group, I speak with the authority of the Sanhedrin, here's the verdict, and he would give that to them. And so Paul's saying, you know, I'm not some independent operator, okay? Uh, I'm not just some guy who's kind of stepping in here and claiming to have authority, I come as an envoy from the throne of God, and what I give you are God's judgments, see? And so he makes that very clear to them. So he attempts, uh, he, you know, his attempts to help uh, them understand is just so that they can understand his apostleship from a number of different perspectives. He's not gloating, he isn't boasting, and he has to do it again in 2 Corinthians 12, so we're going to even get here. Um, we're going to see this later. Uh, he says this, I've, I've become foolish, you, you yourself have compelled me, Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So there's that, both the, the understanding of who he is and his position, and his personal evaluation of himself. So he's not gloating, he's not saying, I'm some, some Betty Big, 
I'm, I'm in no respect and inferior, inferior to the most eminent of apostles, even though I'm a nobody. Verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And we'll do this more completely when we get to this point. But I just want to say this because it comes in line with what we're talking about now as Paul establishes who he is. You know, the word sign speaks of a verification. And we went through this just a few weeks ago when we concerned the identification of Jesus. Remember, this will be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, that's not much of a sign, is it? You're just going to go in there into Jerusalem and, and there's going to be a baby in a diaper. And we talked all about that and how, you know, there's probably thousands of babies in diapers. So they go in there, hey, where's the baby in the diaper? Well, that's not much of a sign. So that was more about identification. So you're going to find him, and where you're going to find him is not where you find kings. You're going to find him where you find paupers, remember? But typically, a sign, as we see it in the scripture, speaks of a verification. And, and the word sign points to a supernatural act that verifies God's message or God's messenger or both of them. And I know you know this. We've been through this numerous times. And the word wonder speaks of the effect of the miracle. So it addresses the miracle too, but performing it, it produced astonishment and it produced amazement. So it's a pretty uh, amazing thing that happens. And the word perseverance, Paul speaks of, a continuing cycle of miracles. It wasn't just a one-shot deal. So he says this, listen, you should have, I, you should, I should have been commended by you, for I wasn't inferior, even though I'm a nobody, because the signs of a true apostleship performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. So he was doing these things. It verified who he was. It verified his message. It was marvelous. The people were amazed, and he persevered at it. So it wasn't just one time, you know, poof, there it is, and that's the one thing I'm going to do to verify that I am who I am. I just continued to do this. You saw this in me, and so you understand who I am. So they were continuing supernatural acts, which created astonishment. They created wonder because they had no human explanation and therefore acted as a sign pointing towards Paul as an instrument of the power of God. And supernatural miracles then were this first category of apostolic credentials that Paul mentions here in his summary, mighty miracles to authenticate who he was. So these are part of the temporary sign gifts that we, took, we talked about not that long ago, and quite extensively, actually. And so we won't go through them again right now. Perhaps when we get to this part, chapter 12, we will go and back and review them. But Paul demonstrated his relationship to God then as he verified his message from God, and so he insists that they pay attention. And that's really what it comes down to. I'm going to write to you, and you should be paying attention. So Paul establishes an identity, and then immediately he establishes authority as an apostle, and then he identifies someone they know who is now with him. So let's back at our text. We'll move our, our way through chapter one, or chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And so Timothy has made the trip to Corinth. We know that, perhaps carrying the First Corinthians letter. Perhaps he read it. Um, things had apparently not gone well, even though Paul had asked the church to allow him to minister there without any fear. So Paul has to make a trip to Corinth. It's a painful visit. Very uncomfortable for Paul, very uncomfortable for the church. Uh, not much was reconciled. They resisted Paul, and you know, so Paul had to go write a very severe letter, and that was likely delivered by Titus, and we looked at this last time, so I'm just summarizing this. And Paul was so distraught by the thoughts of the church's response to this letter that he writes, this severe letter that he delivers by Titus, and he's so worried about Titus's safety that he travels until he catches up with Titus, and then was able to hear the good news that that letter was effective, and Titus's presence there was conciliatory and helped uh, kind of start to heal the issues that were there and bring the church in line. And so he's able to relax a little bit. So now he is writing a follow-up letter, and he mentions Timothy. And I think that's significant. And it's perhaps to let them know, there's a number of reasons I think that it could be there, and, and I can't, you can't be dogmatic about it. But I would just say this, um, you know, 
he lets them know that Timothy's a, uh, he's a fellow laborer with Paul. He's, Paul has called him that numerous times, a co-laborer. So the idea there is that they are together in purpose, they're together in resolve, or if you will, a unity of elders that are all on the same page. So Paul, Paul's just saying, you know, I'm not, it's not just me here writing this last letter. Timothy's here too, and every word is being firmly established. We're going to see that in this letter. You know, what I'm saying and what Timothy is saying are the same. He's establishing the fact that I am, we, we are together on this, and we have, a, we have given these words to you, every word firmly established. So it's more than just Paul. Perhaps it's to let them know of Timothy's love for them, um, that, that they, he has no animosity for the way they may have treated him while he was there. Perhaps it's to smooth things over and come back into harmony. I would think it's probably some of all of that. There's a little bit of authority there, a little bit of unity amongst the elders. Hey, we're establishing these words. You've heard them. Uh, you know, and Paul's going to say, if I have to come back again, this is not going to be nice for the people who are causing the trouble, Paul says. We'll see this later. But maybe it's, maybe it's some of that. Maybe it's some of the, he wants them to know that Timothy loves them because there's going to be many expressions of, of love here in this, in this letter. Perhaps it's to smooth things over, uh, a combination. So Paul establishes his identity. He establishes his authority as an apostle. And then he shows solidarity with another elder. And then he identifies the audience. Now look back at 2 Corinthians 1.1. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So this is one of the perspectives that a believer always must have. And I think it's important to point it out. Is that the church is, the bo- is a body of people, not a building. And you know this. Uh, and that body of people belong to the Lord. So this is a steward's perspective. So I don't own this. I'm just a steward of this. Okay, so... You know, caring for the church that belongs to God places the standard of care very high. That's the perspective of a steward. And that's the way you have to look at that with your life. Your responsibility as you minister in the church is to minister to other believers, and they are God's possession. So if you're teaching a class, if you've got a little Sunday school class, if you've got an adult class, if you're teaching from the pulpit, if you are ministering out in the jail, whatever it is, as you minister to the body of Christ, that is individual believers, you are ministering to something that belongs to the Lord, God's possession to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So these people make up the group, then, as we look at it here specifically, that worships together at Corinth. And we'll look at this more closely in a moment as we get to the word saint. But just briefly, Paul says this a lot, and it helps us keep in mind that the church is not the church of the Corinthians. So as we then apply this understanding here, as Paul writes it in his letter, it's the church of God. See, this is God's church. This is not your church, Paul says, this is God's church. And one of the perspectives that a believer always has to have is the church is a body of people, not a building. And so it's not, you know, it, 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 uh, and that body of people belong to God, not to an organization, not to a denomination, not to a few who were in on the start of the church, okay? It doesn't belong to them, okay? Or any other person. It belongs to the Lord. And that's the kind of perspective that is that of a steward. In other words, as I apply that to me, I look at this church, this is not my church, but it's God's church, and he's given me the responsibility of caring for it. And others who serve in that position of elder are responsible for caring for the church. And that's a heavy responsibility. Paul understood this. You know, if I was just taking care of the church for myself, uh, my standards would be way too low, see. Um, Or maybe they'd be high or whatever it is, but they wouldn't be high like they are with the bar that's set that this is the Lord's church. So the caring up for it for God gives me a tremendously high standard that I have to reach. I have to read and see what the, what the scriptures say the church is supposed to look like. And as a, that as a steward and an elder, as I oversee what goes on in the church, I have to be one who relentlessly pursues that standard. And the church, of course, including me and everybody else, we constantly drift away from that standard. And so the one who oversees continues to bring it back 
towards the standard. And because the church belongs to the Lord and he's given those instructions, then it becomes uh, the requirements of those who care for it. So your responsibility, of course, my responsibility, minister to the church just like that to other believers, and they are God's possession, knowing that they are God's. It helps us set that center very, very high as we do the ministry that we do. So if you remember, as Paul prepares to leave the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it's a marvelous passage right here, one of my favorites, as there's much sorrow that he's leaving, and many know he's not coming back, and they know it's going to be difficult for him. But Paul says this to them as he departs from them. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. So he's talking to those who oversee the church. These are stewards of the flock that belongs to God. Okay, so there's that hierarchy there. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See, it just kind of sums it right up, doesn't it? So remember the price that it cost him and then care for the church with that in mind. That's a pretty sobering perspective, I think. This is what it cost to establish the church. And so you now have the oversight of it, Paul says to these elders who are in Ephesus. And he says, take care of it because God purchased it with Christ's blood. Now, this church of God at Corinth, and we've looked at this briefly before, Corinth is an interesting place. Any glance at Corinth on the map would give you an idea that it was strategic, and indeed it was. Today, it's not a huge city, maybe 60,000, according to the census just a few years ago. But in in, uh, Paul's time, a very busy, very important place, um, home to more than 500,000 people, approximately, during Paul's time. So there's a modern city, maybe 60,000 or so. And then in Paul's time, though, maybe 500,000 or more. Greece is divided up into two parts, north and south. And in the south is a large area called Peloponnese. In the middle of Greece, there are two giant indentations, the Saronic Gulf and the Corinthian Gulf, and you can see them there. And so it's almost as if the southern Peloponnese was just attached just barely. And that whole area there, that isthmus, is about four miles wide. And so so Greece is large at the top. It indents to a four-mile area, and then there's this large southern part of Greece. And then indentation, four miles from the Saronic Gulf to the Corinthian Gulf, two seaports, one at each side in the ancient times, and and right in the middle of that isthmus is Corinth. So all north-south traffic and, of course, east-west traffic went right through the middle of Corinth. So everything coming to and from Athens came right through Corinth, very strategic location, very vital location that became, consequently, a great trade center. In fact, one of the greatest trade centers in the world. Not only did the north-south traffic travel through there, obviously east-west traffic through there, there were ships, for example, uh, that were on the west coast of Greece, and they wanted to get to the east coast, and, and, they, uh, and then down the east to the Mediterranean. And so it was what they needed to do. Uh, they would supposedly need to go all the way around the Peloponnese, at least 250 additional miles to go around the tip. And so um, the area at the south end of Greece is known as the Cape of Malaya. It's very treacherous for sailors. In fact, there's an old saying that used to say, Quote, a sailor never takes a journey around Malaya until he first writes his will. So this is, this is a scary place for them. And so they, uh, very treacherous, small vessels didn't venture there that way very frequently. And so what they used to do, and this is most interesting, which is why Corinth became so popular, is they would simply go in at the Saronic Gulf, and they would take their ship up on land and put it on rollers, and they'd roll it across the four miles, and then they'd dump it back in the Corinthian Gulf and then proceed east. And they would do the same the other way to avoid going around, and it was easier to go the four miles across the land, as hard as that is to believe, than go 250 miles around the Cape and perhaps not make it at all. And so it became, this isthmus became known to the Greek language as dolkos, which just means a place of dragging. And so that was what would happen. And the ships were always being dragged across there. Today, right now, if you go there, you're going to see a four-mile canal called the Corinthian Canal. 
and it's uh, very deep. You can stand at one end, in fact, right at the seacoast of the Corinthian Gulf and look right down the canal. And it's an absolutely straight line to see the West Saronic Gulf. And so the Gulf is now attached by that canal that took 11 years to build and finished in 1893. But the idea for the shortcut to save boats sailing all the way around was considered long before that by the ancient Greeks. And the first attempt to build a canal there was carried out by a tyrant in the 7th century, Periander. And he abandoned the project, owing to technical difficulties, instead constructed the simpler, less costly overland stone ramp. And so that's how that whole dragging began to be uh, what would happen. That was the portage road. And when the Romans took control of Greece, a number of different solutions were tried. The Reign of Tiberius engineers tried to dig a canal, but they were defeated by the lack of modern equipment. Very difficult to dig that deep, as you can see. Nero ordered 6,000 slaves to dig a canal there with spades. According to Pliny the Elder, the work advanced uh, not even a sixth of a mile. And so they didn't get very far with spades trying to dig that deep, as you can well imagine. And so uh, the following year, Nero died. Successor Galba abandoned the project. It was too expensive. In the modern era, the idea was first seriously proposed in 1830. That was right after Greeks, uh, the Greeks' independence from the Ottoman Empire and was brought to completion in 1893. So 11 years of work. And so that's what made Corinth a very popular trade center. I like uh, that kind of background because it gives you an idea of how populous the place was, how many varied things were going on there. You know, we lived down in south of Miami for eight years, almost eight years, and I kind of I connect it to that in a modern way. Miami's a huge seaport, a lot of trade to go on varied backgrounds of people who are there, and lots of stuff comes in there, all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of things, and vices, all are part of that whole culture and become adopted into that culture. And I think that Corinth probably much worse than that uh, what, in what was going on there. So a center of entertainment, center of trade, two great games in those days, part of the world, Olympic Games, of course, and the Isthmus Games, and they took place right here, and so um, very famous. It also became a place of evil. And there's a verb in the Greek language, and that verb is to Corinthianize, and it means drunken, debauchery, and immorality. So the name of the city became synonymous with evil, so the word dropped its capital letter and became a verb for evil. So that just tells you how bad it is. I think Miami could do that, too. You can just drop it and just say, you know, you Miamiize or whatever, and then everybody would know. And I think you would know exactly, if you lived in Florida, uh, you would know exactly what I was talking about. That would be a verb that would apply, and you would know exactly what goes on there. So a vile city, every time... Avermedja City, you know, usually had what's called an Acropolis, every town. And so you've probably heard of the Acropolis of Athens and the building that was built on it. That's a picture of it. And uh, it's really not a proper name. Acropolis just means a high place. And so every town wanted a high place, somewhere to go when a battle came. And there's just such a high place just south of Corinth. It's this huge 2,000-foot uh, rock that just juts up like a big uh, island in the middle of the skyline. It was fortified on top. On a clear day, they could stand and on the top and see Athens 45 miles away from that top. Very important area for strategy for securing the city. The people could be moved up there during an attack uh, from the lower farmlands up there and could secure them. Uh, but also, this Acro-Corinthus, which is what this is called, was the temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was the goddess of love. Except their love wasn't very lovely, and it wasn't very sensitive, and it wasn't very giving. It was just ugly. And uh, so on this, uh, where this temple of Aphrodite was located, it was just mo uh, mostly rotten and vile. That's the kind of love that was portrayed. Their interpretation of Aphrodite went like this. The temple of Aphrodite had a thousand priestesses who were prostitutes, and every night they would go down into the, into the town and ply their trade. So that's just how ugly that was. So that was the worship of the Corinthians. Uh, they were a vile, evil people. 
they had too much money and too much luxury and too much indulgence. The place was very expensive and so full of vices uh, for purchase that the ancient Roman uh, poet Horace said of Corinth, quote, it falls not to every man's lot to go to Corinth. Not everyone can go there. And so the idea was that um, not everybody is wealthy enough to make a trip to Corinth and to enjoy the place as they should. That's the idea. So very expensive, uh, very indulgent, very vile. And so, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, you get a little idea of what they did. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if you remember this, Paul says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul says, neither fornicators nor adulterers. Now, that's the word pornea. That's from which we get our word pornography, pornographers, people who are involved in sexual sin of any kind. Nor adulterers, that's a sexual relationship with someone other than your husband and wife. Nor effeminate, so that's males dressing and acting like females. Nor homosexuals, and again, just very clear teaching from the word of God that a sexual relationship between members of the same sex violates God's law. Uh, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. That's, that's somebody who is abusive in speech or in action, a reviler. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look what Paul says. Such were what? What's it say? Such were some of you, right? And some of us. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. So that's not a complete list of the vices, but you get an idea of what's going on. And so Paul just calls out a lot of the things that just kind of rise to the top of vileness in the pot, if you will, and just says, hey, as you skim over, uh, these are some of the things that perhaps are going on. Uh, these are things that you need to know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are people who practice these things. Uh, they regularly, this is their lifestyle of practice. They will not inherit uh, the kingdom of God. So it just has a, a kind of a cross-section of the ugliness that is this city. So uh, that was their life before, and that was their town still, as they had this little island of a church, if you will, right in the middle of all the sea of ungodliness and wickedness. And uh, these words could all be combined, and they would just give you a composite definition of what it means to Corinthianize. So if you want to know what the verb means, there it is. And so the city is the city to which these letters were written. This is the city to which uh, there was much difficulty. These believers came out of this culture with a lot of baggage. They were new in Christ. They brought a lot of stuff with them. And, and the larger Roman culture around them kept the heat on. So it's not backing off, just like our culture does it now. You don't, when, you, you know, when you're here, you're insulated from that. But when you walk out, you turn on your radio, you watch the television, you, you click on the computer, you're on your iPad, whatever it is. You know, the heat's still on you constantly. Much worse here. Uh, the larger Roman culture kept that on. You, you may ask, you know, has there ever been a worse culture promoting sexual sin than ours? And the answer is yes, the Roman culture, because so much was legal. See, here at least there is this margin, I've said this to you before, and certainly to our men as we've gone on our, our ministry trips, uh, the overnight camping trips and stuff. You know, um, at least here there are some things that are illegal and provide an insulating barrier in some ways for our culture. Uh, with, with the Internet, of course, and all the stuff that goes on there, much stuff goes on, I think, that goes on beyond, uh, you know, below the surface. But in general, I think if you look at the Roman culture, it's, it's worse, it was worse than our culture currently is now, uh, perhaps not for a huge amount of time, but at least at this point. Um, when Paul finishes addressing this, this you know, target audience, he says, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So he talks about the church, he talks about Corinth, and so we get that background. And he says, for, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So the church is included then with all the saints throughout the region. So you just it's implied. So the church, who are the saints, and we saw that in 1 Corinthians 1, right? Paul said, called saints. So we looked at that, so we won't look at that again. 
And then he says, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So all the ones around. So they've been impacted by the church. Uh, they are around that general area. And I suppose then when we hear the word saint, of course, uh, and, and even when we use the word saint, I think when we say saint, we probably think of a Catholic image, right? Because it's been so abused by the church and kind of uh, hijacked by the church. You know, some person, some image of significance in the Catholic church because that's the dominant significance, I think, of the word now, because it's been hijacked and moved away from its original. But um, that was never the biblical meaning of the word. Very simple. Word scripturally and clearly does not refer to special people who've been canonized by a church council somewhere and set up on some kind of pedestal or hung on a wall. You know, they weren't venerated. They're not, you know, the mass is bowing down to them, kissing them, burning candles, whatever. The term saint in, in the word of God is simply defined for us in, from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1-2. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, uh, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours. So here you have the term saint used just to define those who are sanctified in Christ, who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So anyone then, if you will, made holy in Christ. So just kind of summing up what salvation looks like. Anyone calling on his name, that's any believer, any true Christian is a saint. So that's you. So if you're born again, you have that title. In fact, I told you this before, so it's a bad joke, and it'll be worse the second time you hear it. But, you know, when you, when you introduce yourself, you certainly have every right to say, you know, I'm St. Curtis, um, and that should start a good conversation, you know? Um, because people are just like, what did you just say? You know, I've been made righteous, I've been made holy, I've been, I've been declared just by God himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I'm a saint. So that just takes you right into a spiritual conversation. So if you're looking for one that's awkward, there's one that'll work, Okay. So now Paul includes this, you know, particular portion of the reminder to the church, I think, uh, of who they are by indicating that the saints of Achaia are his target audience, the church and the saints in Achaia, which, as we've noticed, is quite a declaration as we saw the things that characterize their living and their worship services and the way they treated Paul and the way they treated Timothy. So it seems odd that he would refer to them as saints, right, and the church, because, as I told you, it's so incongruous that Paul has to remind them, please let Timothy dwell there with you without being afraid. And it just doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't seem to go, again, with the church. But again, his approach to them is, you know, I'm talking to the church, and that also means I'm talking to saints, and here's what it means to be a saint. So it appears that there's this intended purpose in Paul's mind. Uh, the word saint is this adjective, hagios in the Greek. It just means holy one, set apart for God, to be, as it were, exclusively his, pure, clean, and in a moral sense, uh, pure, sinless, and upright and holy. That's how you were made when you came to faith. And that word ecclesia, uh, or church, is that compound noun meaning called out ones. And so these go together so well. You're called out of the world, of the culture, out of your sins, your hagios, you are set apart, as it were, holy. So you, the church is a called out group. See, this is your people, not a building. And you are, as a church, saints, set apart for God to be holy. So that's a marvelous combination. So they complement each other very well. They're called out, and they are holy, which is so remarkable about this, is that in you know, 1 Corinthians, really from the first chapter and verse 10, clear through the end of this letter we're going to look at right now, the letter deals with wrong doctrine and wrong behavior and difficult people and all kinds of stuff that's going on, and yet he still addresses that. When people say to me over the years, man, you know, the church really struggles with different stuff, I'm like, well, 
that's not a surprise, is it? Because if the church didn't struggle with different stuff, we wouldn't have all of these letters from Paul addressing all these things. So the church doesn't change that much. You know why? Because it's, you know, the gospel still calls people out of unholiness and wickedness and vileness and selfishness and self-centeredness and brings them in and, and claims and, and, and shows them to be holy and set apart. And as I've told you before, you know, you may be a vile, um, you know, a uh, person, a, a, a person who uses wicked language. You may be, a, you may be someone who who is, a, is selfish and self-centered. And you may be grumpy or whatever it is. And listen, you come to faith, and the day after that, you're still grumpy and self-centered and vile and all that kind of stuff because that is the condition of your flesh. But now you have a new you in opposition to your flesh and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, which agree. This is not the way I'm supposed to be. And immediately, the Lord begins to conform you to the image of Christ, you see? And so, it's not surprising, of course, that, that, that the church, it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not wrong to say that the church are called out and set apart as holy. They are. That's their position. And yet, we find constantly some empirical evidence that we are the opposite of that, don't we? Sometimes when we go home, we're the only ones who knew we were believers at the end of the day. Right? Have you ever been there? Of course. I mean, everyone has, see? So if there's a doctrinal error or a behavioral error, a moral error that the church could have, Corinth had it. You know, they did everything evil conceivably that those who are called out could do, and yet he still refers to them as saints. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing, okay? It's good to throw your hat in that ring, right? Because if you're not struggling with anything, I would have a big question mark over whether or not you're even redeemed. Because as soon as you become redeemed, you began struggling with everything, just about, and I've told you many times, I've led people to faith who said, you know, I don't want to, you know, I kind of like my life, but I want to be saved and I want to be sure I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm like, dude, not only is he going to change the stuff you don't want him to change, there's like a thousand things you don't even realize he's going to change, he's going to overhaul. Okay, so you, that's why you got to give up your life to find it. Right? You can't kind of set aside this part of your life and just say, okay, well, I'm going I'm to come to faith, but I'm hanging on to this part. Listen, all of that has to go. Okay? Or you have to be willing for all that to go and be remade in order to be effective for the for the cause of Christ. And so that's a marvelous thing to think about. It's sobering, exciting. I mean, like misery loves company, right? I mean, we struggle, and we're, the struggle we have is in the flesh, and someday we're going to be delivered from this wicked flesh, and glory to that day, right? Have you ever got to the end of you just think, Lord, it would be really great if I don't have to live another day in this body, and I get to have a glorified body, I won't mess up anymore, right? And you go back to that same sin or whatever it is, and you're just like, man, it's just so besetting, and I'm just having such a hard time. And the Lord knows we're clay, doesn't he? And the Holy Spirit, you know, Romans says, is just praying right along with us and giving and uttering the words that we need to say that we don't even know how to say. It's a marvelous place you are as a believer. And, and you know, again, that just kind of points out there's some things that we've talked about in the past, you know, a very clear difference between your position before God and your practice, okay? And you know this, but, you know, having gone through the letter from Paul to the Romans, we spent the first 11 chapters in that letter, if you were with us, I really dealing with who we are in Christ, and then the next five chapters dealing with how we should act. Do you remember that? So we got our position right in the first 11 chapters, and then the next five chapters, we got told what it's supposed to look like. You know, if the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you, then this is what it's going to look like, and then we go through and kind of see all of that. And, and so what we have there is positional holiness and then practical holiness. See, Positional holiness is secure, and firm and fixed, and we understand who we are. If we understand the scriptures, we understand who you are in Christ. If you've come to faith, then you are positionally holy, and then practical holiness is what's going on with this whole sanctification process of the Word of God 
interacting with the Holy Spirit in your own life and bringing into subjection the deeds of the flesh. This is why Paul can say, you know, walk this way and don't do that. And obviously, if we were practically holy, which will happen when your body's glorified, then he wouldn't have to say any of that. But he can say that to believers because now, for the first time in your life, if you're redeemed, you have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working in you to actually change your behavior because you didn't have that before. So that distinction is pretty important. It's pretty hard to interpret the New Testament if you don't understand that distinction because it's really not going to make any sense and going to seem to be uh, contradictory to, to, your, to your, uh, what you've experienced. Okay, so, so the Corinthians were holy. They were holy before God because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they had some problems in the way they lived. Their life was not always matching up to their position, and they had not yet lived up to who they were, just like we are. And we understand, I think we can relate to that very well. And sometimes our behavior doesn't always match our position. Sometimes, you know, kings don't act like kings, and presidents don't act like presidents, and teachers don't act like teachers, and so forth. Okay? So we understand that. We can connect with that. And just, I want to just identify then so that we don't sit kind of in some high judgment over the Corinthian church is struggling so much because this is kind of the way it is. So according to Paul, Corinthians were holy. They didn't act like it. They were called out ones at, you know, a church, but sometimes they didn't, they didn't come out of the culture. Um, sometimes they brought it with them. And, uh, but positioning before God, they were in absolute righteousness because of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul uses this first nine verses to tell them that they're saints and tell them what it means. And you have everything past, present, and future that a saint would ever have. We won't go back through that again, beloved. You can read that on your own, 1 Corinthians 1, and then you look at the first 10 verses, and you can see what it means to be a saint. So you've been made holy, therefore you're called holy ones, you're called out ones as a church, you're part of the church because you believed in Jesus Christ, see, not because of your own work. It's a positional truth, beloved, based on a past completed act that continues to work in your life now. The sanctification process began in the past, but salvation is a process over time where you are conformed to the image of Christ. You're secure, you're called out, you're holy positionally, and then that process of sanctification is changing you day by day. And it would be easy to question how they could be holy with all the mess in their lives. Positional holiness, though, is not a matter of works, is it? Can a man make himself holy? You can't. Right? You are holy before the Lord, and the Lord gives you an opportunity then through the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the word to be made in the image of Christ. Hebrews 10.10 10 says this, but this, will we, but this will we have, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and time, time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who were sanctified. See, one offering, you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you are secure forever. And even Jesus sits down and waits to the time when all the enemies will be brought into subjection. And we saw that as we went through 1 Corinthians, didn't we? There's going to be a time in the future when all the enemies of God are going to be put under his feet. But right now, many of them are still active. They are in the world today. You deal with them in the, uh, with your flesh and the appetites that are there. So there's this battle going on. But you, by offering, Christ Jesus has offered one time, perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. You come to faith in Christ for all time. You have been perfected. That is your position. So your works can't produce holiness. God can declare you holy. And then by your following what the word of God says, you begin to bring in to subjection this body. Christ's death made men holy. Men can't 
uh, men can be holy because he paid the price for sin. That's the whole point, see. And so uh, he sanctifies men, that is, he cleanses them, he makes them holy, he sets them apart to himself by his offering, by his suffering, by his death, see. And Christ does that through the vehicle of belief. Acts 20, verse 20 through 21. Paul says this, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, here it is, repentance toward God and faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, speaking to the elders, saying, listen, this is what I told you. This is still the message that you give. You're going to have difficult times. You're going to struggle. This is the church that the Lord has given you oversight for. Make sure that this message is the primary one. Repentance toward God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the perfect sacrifice. He rose from the dead, and they believed, and they were made holy. See? And so he can, Paul can confidently say to the church, you are called out once. He can confidently say you are set apart unto God. And he can say that without even worrying that he's not correct or because their action sometimes violates what appears to be, uh, should be happening because there's this process going on. And even now, all those enemies that are uh, enemies of God are still not brought under their feet. They will be someday. But now the believers live in this world. Corinthians were doing that too. They brought some of the culture into the church with them. But if they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they accepted his death, his resurrection on their behalf. They were saints. Same with you. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've accepted his death and resurrection on your behalf, you are a saint. That is your position. You're holy, Paul says, and he just lays that down. He just says, hey, people, by the very definition, you've been made holy. You're called out once. Uh, and, and his point to remember is, you know, you, um, what are you doing acting unholy? You know, unholy? Why, why are you doing, why, are your, why is your action contradicting where you are positionally? That's the whole point of the letter, see? And all the other letters. Here's the things that are going on. Here's what needs to be corrected. So it comes on very strong, I think, when you understand the background of the book, when you understand what's going on with the Corinthians, uh, how the church was formed, uh, things that Paul had to go through, the clear message of the gospel that he teaches. I think things really come together for us in just a simple statement. 2 Corinthians 1.1. I'm going to wrap up in just a second. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, and all the saints who are throughout Achaia. That alone, if you understand everything that he's talking about, so as they read the letter, have the letter read to them, that by itself could be an indictment, right? I mean, as we read the beginning of any of the letters of Paul, and any of the other ones, for, for that matter, who start, which start this way, isn't, doesn't that already become an indictment? Do you ever think about that? So you should never blast through the intro of a book. Because by, the, by itself, it draws our attention to who we are. And that's a great thing to be reminded of, right? Especially if you're struggling a little bit. You know, that's a piercing sword. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Now, this is the... This is the church that has had three Pauline visits, and this is the fourth letter he's writing. So when they open it up and they read it, it's, it's probably, I think, from the beginning, as this was the, this was the letter that um, we understand is, is that final one to them after they, he's understood people have come around. So that could be an indictment. You're saints, you're holy, you're the church. What are you doing? So he's identified them, he gives them a greeting, common Christian greeting. Look at verse 2, 2 Corinthians 1, 2. He says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we pointed out in the New Testament, a letter normally began with the name of the person sending it and then the name of the recipient and then the greeting. And the common form of greeting displayed in most letters was be glad or rejoice. Carrion, the Greek word carrion. We, we see that, in fact, 
um, it just expresses the writer's desire that the addressee should be cheerful or rejoice. And we actually see that very word used in Acts 15.23, uh, the Jerusalem Council to the Gentile churches, that's how they start. They use that very word, carrion, rejoice, be glad. Okay, we see it again, Acts 15.23. Uh, so Claudius Lysias sends a letter to Felix, and he identifies who sent it, and then he s- uses that word. And so that very common uh, Greek form of writing. And we see it at the beginning uh, of the letter from James, in James 1.1, that's exactly how James starts it. He says, rejoice. And so I think it's interesting, in First and Second Corinthians, Paul, no doubt, very familiar with that form of letter writing, and probably had written hundreds of letters precisely like that in his former life. I think it's really cool that um, he changes it for these readers and for six other of his letters, and he gives this wonderful reminder. He doesn't just say, carry us, rejoice. He, d- he gives this reminder that believers are not just recipients of a letter from Paul. They are recipients of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I just really, I like that attention to detail. He could have just started a letter like many, many, many other letters are started, and some even in the New Testament, but Paul doesn't say that. He says, so the church of God, which is Corinth, and with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, Carius, that's what he could have said, rejoice. Instead, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you just love that greeting? That's a marvelous start to a letter, isn't it? Grace is the favor, and peace is the fruit. Isn't that cool? Grace is the favor you received, and peace is the fruit. Grace is the Greek greeting, peace is the Hebrew he says, you're saints, you're Christ's body, therefore you have grace and God's peace. That's you. You're called out, you're holy, you have grace, you have peace. And you know, again, as you think about the recipient of the letter, you, you can't say that to an unsafe person, can you? You can't say you have grace and peace because they don't have either of those things. They don't have either of those things. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for a time in your word. We thank you for being able to go over some background. I think it's, it's your desire that we do this. I think to explore and to understand and to grasp the full breadth and width as much as we can with our uh, finite minds of your mind as you have brought this word to us is your desire. I think it's good that we know, I think it's appropriate that it is your will that we know these things. We know the joy that comes from knowing these things, and we know the sorrow, too, as we relate many times too closely to the original readers that we find in our own lives and habits, our attitudes, very much like those that had to be chastened, brought into correction. We find sometimes absent from our lives the things that we see like Stephanus, who has given himself and set his family and himself to the ministry of the saints. That was their main thing. We find many of those things that we find exhibited as examples absent from us in, in uh, a very real sense. And so, Lord, I pray as we just even read these first couple of verses that you begin to do your work. They can be by themselves. Indictments, they can be encouragements. They can work in many different ways in our own heart. As we read these things, understand their meaning, Understand what it means to be church, called out ones. Understand what it means to be a saint, set apart as holy. That's our position. May we find ourselves acting in accordance to 
to be versatile. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the blessing of the ministry that goes on here. Thank you for the many who are involved in the giving and in the supply of all that we need and what's needed immediately for the saints. Thank you for the sacrifice that goes there. Thank you, Father, too, for a good year in past and for the year that is before us. We don't know what the year holds. We know who holds the year. And we're looking at the long view of history and understanding that you know those who are yours. You have set us apart. You bundled us up in the bundle of the righteous. You know who are yours. You have delivered us from our own consequences of our own sin and the penalty of that, and you will deliver us to the glory that you've promised. You promised it once. It's promised forever, both for Israel and for ourselves. Lord, we are so grateful to be standing there. And Lord, if there are people here today, perhaps that they don't understand and they don't find themselves set apart as a church, they don't identify that, they don't identify with being made holy. They find just their life as a pattern, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, of just one wicked thing after another. With no remorse and no thought, uh, no, no guilt, embracing lifestyles and patterns of lifestyles and philosophies of the world without any thought that that might be disobedient to you, without any, any guilt associated with it, just living that way because that's the choice. Father, help them understand everybody gets what they want and everybody likes what they get. We have the right to choose those things apart from your will, but from that come, of course, chastening and judgment. Certainly, maybe now, for those who live outside of the faith, uh, things may be going well. That's deceiving because uh, they're under a curse. You're under a curse if you haven't received Christ as your Savior. Do you know that? And the wrath of God is being saved up and will be poured out on you. It was poured out on Christ and made a way for you to be delivered from your own sin. If you rejected that deliverance, it will be poured out on you. Hell awaits you. Permanent punishment with a body that does not die forever. That will be the reward of those who reject the wonderful salvation, the grace that comes and peace that comes through Christ's work. Father, if there's anyone here today, anyone at all, who has not understood what it means to be holy. Lord, bring them into conformity with who you are today. We know our own holiness is because you've made us holy, Father. We know uh, not because we ourselves are holy or in any way sitting next to someone. And uh, Lord, I pray there'd be no, there'd be no appearance, at least in the mind of, non, of a non-believer, that we think we're anything very special. We don't. Our holiness is because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. Our holiness is by believing. Repentance toward God and faith towards Christ. Thank you, Father, that we are holy, even though we fail, even though we sin, even though, like the Corinthians, we identify with many, too many things in our culture and have a hard time detaching ourselves from them. We're still holy, still saints, still blessed. Just how it is, though, Father, how it would be to be repaying you with thankfulness and obedience. This is the love of God that we obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome, as we're learning on Sunday night. May you bring our lives in line with what you've made us to be. And again, Father, if someone's here this morning, not holy, not saints, never believed, received the perfect gift of salvation provided on the cross, Lord, I pray that you'll help them do that this morning. Prompt them when they submit repentance toward God and faith towards Christ. 
And Father, we rejoice with them in that decision, that new birth that occurs today. And Father, we, we commit them to you. They belong to you. They are yours. They've been adopted into your family. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.